0: Again, this is Psalm 10, starting in verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are... There is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hid in his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call him to account. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on it. Lord, as we come before you tonight, sometimes we are in situations or in circumstances that provoke us to ask, God, where are you? Why do you hide your face from me? Why are you far away from me? And I pray as we look at this passage tonight and consider the feeling of doubt, of doubting things, that you would come and reassure us. Like a father gentle with his children, I pray that you would come and send your spirit and just place your arms around us. Make us to know the depths of your mercy and grace. Open our eyes to see the reality of things in our lives, in our situations, and I pray especially that in these words and as I talk about them, Lord, that you would make your name known, that you would be glorified among us, but even more so, Lord, that you would feed our hearts on your word. I pray that you would send your spirit to open our hearts to receive what it is that you want us to know, and that you would also, especially, Lord, send your spirit upon me, that I would... Talk about these things in a way that is good and true and helpful and clear, that is applicable to the lives of these students. I pray that you would bless them as we talk about this, that you would continue to grow us into the people that you're making us to be. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Every Christmas, my wife and I watch kind of the same routine list of different Christmas movies, and one movie that we watch every year is the Polar Express. And the Polar Express, uh, some people are a little off-put by its animation style. I I love most things about it. But the whole movie really is about doubt and belief. It's about the main character. uh, He's credited as Hero Boy, which is kind of a weird name. But um, he has these doubts about the existence of Santa Claus. He keeps saying, you know, are you sure? Can I really trust you? Can I really believe this? He doesn't want to be fooled. Um, and, and the movie like portrays him doubting the existence of Santa Claus as this like horrible thing. Like when he kind of finally owns up to like, oh man, like I doubt. That people like scream at him and call him a doubter. At the end of it, he meets Santa and he gets this magic bell that only people who quote unquote truly believe in Santa can hear. The way that this movie talks about belief is that it is irrational. That it is rooted in an emotional certainty. Right? If you just believe hard enough in your heart, then that's what it means to, to truly believe. 100% belief, no doubt, no wavering. It seems to be more about an emotional state than rationally considering any facts. There's no gray area, no doubt mixed with uh, belief in polar express. And sometimes I feel like the way that our culture, even our, our subculture in churches, the way that churches talk about belief in Jesus or belief in God is like that. That you cannot have doubts don't have any doubts just believe what does the bible actually say about doubt what does the bible actually say about belief and doubt what about doubts one pastor defines doubt this way he says doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief so that it is neither of them wholly and it is each only partly what he's saying is that doubt is this sort of in between you, know, you, you want to believe, you have faith, but there are these questions, unbelief, disbelieving looms large. And I think that there are two mistaken extremes, there are two wrong ways to approach doubt that we see in the church and in our culture around us. One is, I guess you could say, the the, the unbelief or the doubtful way of life. Some people call this deconstruction. And it's, it's sort of an extreme skepticism to be like, okay, you know, you need to tear everything down, doubt everything— and then just sort of rebuild what, what works for you. And I think that this is unhelpful in a lot of ways, right? You're always doubting, never believing. And the other extreme is to, re- to regard doubt as uh, itself as sin. And to say you cannot doubt, you cannot entertain doubt for a moment, or you are sinning. It's It's only a problem to be solved. But that's not how the Bible talks about doubt. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. It's not a deal-breaker for God. In Mark 9... Uh, Jesus encounters a man who brings a son who is afflicted and struggling to him. Uh, He he encounters this man, this this father, who brings his boy to be healed by Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, hey, like, what do you want me to do, basically? And the man says, hey, if you can, help us. Um, And Jesus catches that if, and he says, you know, if, do you not believe in me? Like, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And that kind of faith, that kind of belief, belief that is mixed with unbelief, belief that is mixed with doubt, was enough for Jesus to show mercy to him. Jesus is very patient with those who doubt, because the truth of the gospel for us is not dependent on how emotionally certain we are about it. The truth of the gospel for you is not dependent upon your state of mind about it or how you feel about it. It is an objective truth written in the blood of Christ. The truth of the gospel for us is dependent upon the historical Jesus living, dying, and rising again. In other words, God's faithfulness to his promises is what makes the gospel true to you and for you. Is God faithful to his promises? If so, if you have put your faith in Christ, even if you are emotionally doubting, you're feeling shaky in your faith, it is true for you. The gospel is true for you, which I think impacts how we relate to doubt. And as we look at this psalm, we see the psalmist expressing doubts. And the way that the psalm kind of talks about this, I want you to see two things. Because, or I want you to see, this is the main point. Because God is faithful to his promises, we can boldly take our doubts to him. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's expressing his doubts, taking them to the Lord. He's asking these questions that are honestly rooted in doubt. And it's a very specific kind of doubt. He's seeing the wicked prosper. He's saying, God, how can this be? How can you be good and just? And the wicked are doing so well. Because God is faithful to his promises, we can boldly take our doubts to him. There are two things that the psalmist does in this passage that I think will be helpful for you. If you're in a season of doubt, these are two things that I think the Bible calls us to that will both help us to understand our doubts, but to also hold them in a way that's not going to lead us down a dangerous path. So first is that we have to consider our doubts. Consider them, ponder them, think about them. And secondly, you ought to doubt your doubts. That sounds a little strange, but we'll, I'll explain in a second. First, to consider your doubts. The psalmist is perplexed by a very specific situation. Right? He says, why are you standing far away, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And he sees the situation on earth. He looks around, and he sees that wickedness disregarding the law of the lord not caring for other people's well-being it seems to work it's an efficient way to live he sees people oppressing abusing people around him devising evil schemes and crushing people and taking advantage of them it seems to be successful right the wicked are pursuing the poor they're boasting of the desires of their soul and all throughout they curse god they renounce god and they even deny his existence Look at in verse 6, he says, uh, or in verse 5, it says, his ways, talking about the wicked person, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments, God, your judgments aren't high. They're so high that they're out of the wicked person's sight. What good are they? The wicked person says in his heart, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not meet adversity. Verse 11, the wicked person says in his heart, God's forgotten me. He's hidden his face. He'll never see me. He, He is off doing something else. It does not matter. God will never bring justice against me. And he sees people saying that and thinking that, and it drives the psalmist to doubt, right? It seems like the ways of the wicked man prosper. He's cruel, he's unkind. He just gets ahead and nothing bad ever seems to happen to him. And this provokes doubt. Lord, why are you far away? Why are you hiding yourself in times of trouble? Why are you not protecting these weak and innocent people? If you were good and powerful, why do these bad things happen? This is what the psalmist is wrestling with. Doubt that is provoked by his circumstances. Maybe some of y'all can relate to that. Maybe some of you like look at the world around us and see difficulty or wickedness. Maybe some of you have experienced or seen things in your own life that have made you doubt, that have made you ask, God, where are you? What are you doing? Where are you, Lord? There are two broad types of doubts. There are two types of doubts. Um, I think you can put most doubts into one of these two categories. The first uh, call intellectual doubts. These are people who kind of have more sort of like philosophical or intellectual questions about Christianity. Like, can I really trust the Bible? Is the way that the Bible was put together, does that like make sense? Is that actually true? How can I reconcile the sort of like scientific record with the claims that the Bible makes about miracles? Um, You know... What about the problem of evil? If God is is, is all good and, and all powerful, how is it that evil exists? I mean, that's kind of what the psalmist is wrestling with. And those are, like, good questions. Um, the second type of doubt is uh, what I would call emotional doubt. And that's more, like, related to circumstances of your personal story. Like, if Christianity is true, if God's real, like, why why are things so hard for me? Why am I sad? Why am I struggling? Why do I keep on struggling with sin, even though I want to defeat it? Am I really saved? Is the gospel working for me? Maybe you felt these doubts. Uh, maybe there's there's like so many others that I could you know come up with. But um, maybe you've experienced these doubts or ones like them. And there's a couple things that are really good news with all of them. One is that there are real answers to all those questions. Like none of those are answers that leave me stumped. Um, none of those are answers that leave, you know, people who are trained and equipped uh, sort of pastors or apologists kind of perplexed. There are real answers for them, and sometimes the way that, that I think those questions are, are put to people, there's this pressure to be like, if you don't have an answer right now, then like, is your faith worth it? Like, is it valuable? And the truth is, like, you don't need to know the answers to all those off the top of your head. That's what resources are for. That's what books are for. That's what talking to pastors and mentors are for. Christians have been wrestling with these questions for thousands of years. And there are many older and wiser Christians who are not afraid about talking about these things with you. I would love to talk about any of this stuff with you. So if you have doubts, if you have any questions about anything, I mean, please, I would love to meet with you. Um, And part of why people have wrestled with these ideas and, and have answers for them is because they have wrestled with doubts themselves. They've experienced doubt, and they have gone through the process of reading the scriptures and doing their homework and studying so that they can have an answer for it. Because, like, all Christians have struggled with doubt in one way or another. Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist pastor in the 1800s, who was a man who literally preached to thousands and thousands of people, changed thousands of people's lives, and through you know, his, his sermons being written down has reached many, many thousands more. But he struggled deeply with doubt and depression. He writes this about, this about his experience with depression. He says, All of a sudden the thought crossed my mind, which I hated but could not conquer, that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell, that all my prayers were but a farce and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. He's not writing this at the beginning of his life. He's in the middle of a sort of like 30 to 40 year long career of ministry when he writes this. And if Charles Spurgeon is able to express that and still trust in Jesus, like you can doubt too. (laughs) It's okay. You can express your doubts to God. If Spurgeon is able to doubt and still be used by God in mighty ways, you can do that too. Be honest with your doubts. Consider them. Take them to God. Take them to your fellow Christians. Take them to people in your community. What you don't want to do with doubt is hold it kind of all on your own or or look to sources that are going to give you bad answers. Look to trusted sources to help you with them. Like, if you have doubts and you just go and sort of Google, go to a, a webpage or a YouTube channel that is being run by, like, an avowed atheist, you're, he's going to lead you down a path that is not true. Express your doubts. Consider them in, con, in continuity with other Christians. Take your struggles to your friends, to your pastor, to your church, to mentors. And like I said earlier, like, I would love to talk about them with you. Um, and also, like, look how the psalmist regards his doubts. Look how he holds them. His response in verses 12 through 18 focuses on two things. One, he calls the Lord to bring justice against the wicked. He says, like, God, I don't understand why you're not doing this. Lord, please bring justice. Arise, O Lord, in verse 12. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce you? You know, you do see, in verse 15, he he says he calls him to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, just to to destroy the power of the wicked person to hurt other people. The second way is he calls upon and, and reminds himself of the kindness and sovereign lordship of God. In verse 17, he says, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear. He knows that he is seeing the wicked prosper for a moment, but that moment is not forever. The psalmist reminds himself of this, that, that God is Lord over all time and that his purposes are moving, right? He knows that he is in the midst of the story that God is unfolding, right? For a moment, like for the for the season of the psalmist's life and for the moment in your life, for the specific doubt, why do the wicked prosper? We only see, you know, this snapshot of this present time. God is at work he is bringing about justice in this world. He is showing mercy to his people and taking care of them. And in, in the grand scheme of history, if you're able to look out on the timeline from a wide enough perspective, you would see God bringing justice to the wicked and mercy and grace to his people. Right? Think about this. like If you were baking a cake and you took it out of an oven after 15 minutes and it was supposed to be in the oven for an hour... And it's all like soggy and runny, you wouldn't say, ah, oh, the oven's broken. Like, didn't didn't make the cake. No, you'd be like, no, it's it's just not the right time yet. You wouldn't conclude that the oven was broken. It's not the right time. God is at work doing justice, protecting his people, and pouring out his mercy in the right time, in his time. In the moment that he chooses. But understanding that involves letting go of the idea that we are the center of the universe. Like, I doubt. When I doubt God's goodness, it's because I want, something, <laughs> I want something from God on my terms, in my timing, when I want it. But I'm not God, and you're not God. We are not the center of the universe. We're not the arbiter of what is right and moral and true. We can assume sometimes that our way of looking at reality is the most accurate, right? Think about it. If that's true, if that's your assumption, then of course your doubts about God are going to be magnified because you think that you're the one, you operate as if you're the one who ought to be making the decisions. We act as if our doubts are somehow more real than God's answers to them. Right? And and that is precisely why you and I we ought to doubt our own doubts. You ought to doubt your doubts. Or maybe more uh, sort of broadly, doubt the doubts, doubt, doubt the assumptions that your doubts are based on. Like for the psalmist, right? Like I think that the wicked should be punished when I think they should be punished. That's an assumption that the psalmist is kind of making. Um, and and, and it, it's it's maybe something that's behind his doubt. Now, obviously, like, this is scripture. This is God's word. He's not necessarily making a mistake in that. But this this paints a picture of the human experience for us. We ought to doubt our own doubts. We're not the arbiters of what is true and good. We're not the judges of all things. You don't know all things about all things. And that's good. Like, you weren't made to do that you don't need to do that. When we doubt God's goodness, when we doubt his existence, when we doubt something about him, we assume that we are more reliable witnesses or sources of knowledge about reality than God. That's ultimately what we're saying with our actions, right? Because I cannot perceive God, therefore I cannot be sure that he exists. I must doubt his existence. That's the sort of logic that that comes from assuming that we are the center of knowledge. It's, it's, ridiculous. There's plenty of things that definitely exists that I've never perceived and will never perceive. But that's the logic that our hearts go down. In the psalm, the psalmist is saying something similar. Because the wicked prosper and I cannot see God's justice, he's feeling like God is hiding himself and hiding his justice. Like, God, where are you? Where, you know, Why are you standing far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's calling upon God and upon God's justice. Right, he acknowledges things that he knows are true about God. He, uh, to put it another way, he holds those doubts really loosely. He's like, God, where are you? And then he says, God, come and show your justice to us. He's acknowledging that his understanding of the situation, his understanding of what God is doing, is incomplete and is clouded by sin. He calls upon God to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. He reminds himself in verse uh, verse. 16, that the Lord is king forever and ever, that he is sovereign over everything. He reminds himself that God is kind and just, which is interesting. This, this response to his own doubt is not a particularly logical argument. He's not sort of going through the logic of, like, everything that I have just said. Really, he's responding with humility. He's responding to his doubts by saying, like, Lord, like, please do this. Uh, please come and show justice to your people. But, uh, Lord, you're you're, you're the king. You're God. You are kind. You will protect your people, even if I don't understand it. He's not responding with well-polished arguments, but basically he just says, God, you are holy and kind, good, just, and wise. Come and save us and bring justice. In effect, the psalmist is acknowledging the limitations of his own perspective. He's saying, like, God, it feels like you're far off, but I don't know everything. I can't see everything. So maybe you're not. He humbly approaches God with his doubts, acknowledging his place in all things. In other words, he doubts his own doubts. He doubts his experience of being far from God. He knows that the Lord is good, is just, is merciful, and is kind. Right, And and that tracks, actually, because if we have been saved by the grace of Jesus, which we contribute nothing to then it would make sense right, for us to hold our doubts in a loose fashion. We ought to be humble enough to doubt our own doubts. A lot of times our doubts actually come from something that we assume is true, but that might not actually be grounded in Scripture. Tim Keller provides a great example of this. He, he kind of poses this hypothetical situation. He says, imagine that you meet an atheist who is happy and kind and moral. And because of that, you start to doubt the truth of Christianity. Well, if there's good non-Christians, like, why should I? follow jesus but there's a belief underlying that right the assumption that that person is making is that if someone's an atheist they're an awful terrible person um which the bible of course does not say the bible actually says that non-believers may be kind and generous and happy and pleasant and, and lovely people to be around and even beyond that you know it betrays an even deeper assumption that christians are good people Whereas in reality, of course, the Bible says that Christians are sinners in need of grace. People who acknowledge the depths of their own weakness and wickedness. People who must say, like Paul said, I am the chief, the foremost of sinners. We must be humble people. We must doubt our doubts and interrogate the reason for our doubts, right? Do you have mistaken assumptions? Or a lot of times I think doubt's, Come from engaging in some sort of sin that you're unwilling to let go of. You know the Bible regards as sin, and saying, "You know, I I like this, so I I want to kind of doubt the Bible so that I can feel comfortable doing this." Still, maybe you're just in a really difficult situation in life, and it's hard for you to see God's love and care. Like in all these situations, like none of these are insurmountable. None of these are unassailable. And it's okay to be in situations where it is hard to see God's love and kindness for you. But just because it's hard to see it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. I heard a story uh, from a pastor who kind of talked about this incident. It was, uh, it was early in his uh, pastoral career, and he, he visited this family. And uh, kind of in the entry hall, there's this like round carved stone piece of like decoration on a table. And it just said, uh, the moon is round. And the pastor was like, that's very interesting. Like, of course it is. What does that mean? And he started talking to the family, and it turns out that in the family that there had previously uh, been a young girl who died of cancer when she was 14. And in the the years that she had been diagnosed and kind of suffering and going through this, uh, she kept a notebook of Bible verses that had comforted her during her suffering. And when she eventually passed, Her friends and family began to go through her journal and read it, and the middle of the book was an index card with no verse written on it except the words, the moon is round. And they were, like, confused by that for a second, but after reflecting on it, um, they realized the meaning of this. Right, when it's dark and there's only a sliver of the moon that is showing, on a night like this, we were driving here and we saw the crescent moon. Um, What do we still know about the moon? That it is Round. It is still there, even in darkness when there's only a, a, just a tiny bit of light from the moon. We know that the moon is round. The this teenage girl, right? She believed that even though she could not see enough into God's providence to understand what she was going through, that she could still know that God is kind and gracious. When God seems far from you, you can know that God's love is still real. It is still there. Even if your life seems stormy and cloudy, that doesn't mean that he is far from you. His graciousness is still for you because he loves you. And God allows us to go into seasons of doubt sometimes. He is at work even in those seasons. Martin Luther, who was a pastor, he wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In the season of some of his worst doubt, Good, God-glorifying things can come from your doubts. One pastor wrote, Nothing is so certain as that which is certain after doubts. Being shaken settles and roots things deeply. You can trust that even in seasons of your doubt that God loves you and is working for good in your life. This psalm helps us to express our doubts and to shape them in a way that glorifies God. Right? We ought to take our doubts to God, not hold them on our own or assume that they are right just because we've thought of them. God knows that this is not our home, and so sometimes he allows us to experience the discomforting experience of doubting. In the specific example of this psalm, right, the wicked prosper, and we know deep down that is not right. And part of what God is doing in our hearts by allowing us to exist in a world for now— where the wicked prosper, is one, it gives us hope in God's coming to put all things right. Right. It keeps us from putting down roots in this world and just being com- like comfortable with what we have here. But also, it calls us to try to work faithfully for justice and love and kindness, to honor God in our lives, in our communities, and in our culture. One last thing, I want you to know that in any struggle or darkness, in any doubt... God is not calling you into something that he was not willing to go into himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was about to be betrayed, he's he's hours from going to the cross and dying a horrible death, but not just that, but but receiving the, the justice and wrath of God for sin. Jesus prayed to God. He said, Father, you know, if there's any other way, like, please don't make me do this. But... Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that he had been prepared for this moment, for this day, to go to the cross. In effect, Jesus was doubting the plan of God, according to his humble human nature. And yet Jesus was not so tied to his own self-interest. He was willing to submit to the plan of God. He was without sin, willing to submit to his father's plan, even unto death. Jesus laid himself aside to take up his cross so that you and I could be brought near to God. He was willing into the go, into the dark, to the unsureness, to the, to, the, to the fearful wrath of God. And the bond that he has made for us to be with God because of his sacrifice, because of his life, death, and resurrection, it cannot be harmed in the slightest by any doubt that you can experience. There's no doubt that you can have. That will separate you from the love of God. Take your doubts to God. Glory in him. Trust him. And believe. Let's pray. You have moved all things. So that your people could be brought in. To be made heirs to your kingdom. To be made sons and daughters of your house. Lord it feels so far away for us. Who are in this place of suffering and sin. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would lift us up, that by your son's grace, that you would encourage us tonight. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.